It is a funny thing what we can take for granted, uh, the things that we can take for granted and then just uh, dismiss out of hand sometimes because we do take them for granted. I was reminded of that in a news story that I read just a few days ago, um, an early Renaissance painting of Christ being mocked on his way to being crucified was discovered hanging in the home of a French woman who had no idea no idea what it was that she had hanging there in her house. I had no idea that this was actually a masterpiece of, of art, a collector's piece to say the least. The painting is recalled Christ mocked. It was done by a gentleman by the name of Cimabue of Florence in the 13th century. According to Dominique Lacount, head of Action Auction House in Saint-Lys, this work of art is the only one of Cimabue that has ever come to market uh, the woman who owned the painting had no idea, I don't know how she got it, uh, she had no idea uh, what this thing was uh, until it was actually auctioned off. She said that the painting had never attracted any attention really whatsoever as it was sitting there, st- uh, hung there in her kitchen. Did I say, I don't think I did, did I tell you that it auctioned, it sold for $27 million? Yeah. Yeah, so check your kitchen. Um, it's, it's, again, it's funny that, that that which we we just take for granted, we don't know what we have, we take it for granted, so we dismiss it. We don't know its value, so we don't really pay it much heed. Uh, it happens in so, so many ways. Um, we're pressing on this morning in this little mini-series that we've entitled Reading the Bible. And uh, last few weeks, last few times I've been up here, we've been looking at Psalm 19. Those of you who are here may remember something of that, and looking at how God speaks to his people first, as you look at Psalm 19, through his world, that which he has made, and through his word, that which he has spoken. And this morning, we're going to continue along those lines and look at another book of the Bible, moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, moving from an ancient poem to an ancient letter. We know it as 2 Timothy. Uh, 2 Timothy, we're going to be looking, you can see on the screen, uh, uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. Now, this may be a familiar text to some of you. I I, I think that even if if it's familiar to you, my guess is that I don't know that we appreciate the wonder of what is being stated in, in these words. Um, if you're trying to find that, by the way, uh, 2 Timothy sits in the flow of a bunch of T's in, in the New Testament. So you have First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, big book, not by Paul, uh, but that's a, those are sort of you know landmarks as to where to find this this little book. It's it's not very long at all. Second Timothy, uh, chapter uh, three is what I want to read. But before I, I read, I want to give you just a sense of the the context because this I think this this helps. It helps us understand what we're about to to read, what we're about to hear. So uh, this is the Apostle Paul. He is writing to his young protege, Timothy. Paul is uh, awaiting his execution. Uh, It's very late in life. In fact, it's right towards the end of his life because he is going to be executed. Uh, He's awaiting his execution, uh, writing from a Roman jail. You could say, some writers say this is in essence Paul's, um, his final farewell to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, his final charge that he is is giving to this this young man to endure hardship. That's a thing that keeps coming up again and again and again through 2 Timothy, to endure hardship, to resist false teachers. That's another 
theme that comes up again and again in 2 Timothy, to stand firm, to hold fast. Again and again, Paul is trying to press onto his reader to, to, to hear this and to take these things seriously. And, and as we come in mid-argument, midway through what Paul is saying, it, the, what I'm actually going to be camping out on here, verses 16 and 17, are almost, almost an aside to what Paul is saying regarding the need to stand firm and hold fast because he's, this, these, these verses we're about to put our feet into or put, stick our toes into, whatever, examine over the next few minutes are actually part of just of an argument that he's making, a larger argument that, that he is, is, is making. And it's worth knowing that as, as we read this. So anyway, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. Hear now God's word. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch in Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, can we pray for a moment? Uh, Lord, um, I fear that those words I just spoke just a second ago are almost throwaway words for many of us so often. Hear now the word of God. Are we hearing what we're saying? Um, do we believe it? Do we really believe it? Um, it's good that we're seated when we hear it. Um, we thank you. We thank you for this world and how you do speak to us through what you have made. And we can learn much of our creator in the, the work of his hands, of your hands. And we can, of course, learn so much more, though, in what you have spoken, in what you have revealed here in the scriptures, the, the holy sacred writings. Uh, would you please uh, help us, help us to, to, to feel the, 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 the import of that, the the wonder of, of that this morning, whether we've heard 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 for 10,000 times or this is the first, uh, we pray that it would land on us afresh today uh, and to consider the implications, uh, the, the far, far-reaching implications of these simple things. We pray in your name. Amen. The late J.I. Packer uh, told this story on, on several occasions 
uh, he, he is telling the story of this man who's in the middle of this English town, and he begins pointing at the ground, just yelling at the top of his lungs. He wants people to hear what he's saying. It's alive! It's alive! As he's pointing down there towards the ground. Woke you up, didn't I? There you go. Uh, people quickly are following his gaze, looking at his gestures, wanting to know what in the world is, is he so worked up about. Some back away. Because they're like, oh, my gosh, something alive here in the middle. Some are backing away. Others, you know, fathers, mothers, getting in front of their children. Stay back, stay back, you know. This, this thing might, might hurt you, whatever it is. The man continues to shout. He begins to move closer to the hat. That's what he's been pointing at, this, this hat there sitting in the middle of the street. He's pointing, gesturing towards this thing. And he jumps back as though something's about to jump out in any second. And uh, as though it's about to bite him. It's alive. I, I, I don't know how, but it's, it's alive. It doesn't seem possible, he says. And he draws near. He's drawing near again to, to lift the hat with great trepidation. And the crowd is on the, the edge of its, of its seat, its feet, uh, wondering what's going to happen. Some are, are leaning in, wondering. Others are shrinking back, just wondering. And finally, he, he lifts the hat, and he lifts the hat, and what is exposed there bef- below, the, bef- beneath the hat, is a Bible. It's a Bible. Now, some, when they see him do this, ah, sigh with relief, it's just a Bible. And, and others are angry, irritated, like, we well, got us all worked up for nothing. And then others laughing, what a funny, amusing joke. But everybody pretty much disperses, just a few, just kind of wonder, what is with this eccentric man? But he's not content. He's, he's not done yet. He then reaches down again, he picks up the Bible, and he says, I tell you, it's alive. The fellow might have been a little eccentric, a little odd, but he was right. He was right. Um, this book that we know as the Bible is unlike any other book there is. It is alive. We ought, to, we ought to approach it, engage it, come to it with that in mind. Our expectations, you know, knowing that we're coming to not just some dead book, but we're coming to something that is alive, that ought to change our expectations in terms of how we come to it, our appreciation of it. Now, the text, verses 16 and 70, that, that brings us to, to that. As I alluded to earlier when we were beginning this, it's in the middle of a, in the midst of a larger context. Paul is, is, is giving Timothy a, a reminder. He is trying to offer him some encouragement. He is uh, making an argument. He is building a case. Timothy, you need to stand firm. You need to hold fast. That's what you need to do, right? That's the charge. But then he tells him why. And part of the why is the what. What you have, what you know, these sacred writings which are able to make you wise for faith in Christ Jesus. That's the why. The, the what is the why behind this charge, and that ought to fill our hearts with wonder as we consider this book really is unlike any other. I mean, it is great literature, to be sure, and you really can't understand much of even, if nothing else, Western civilization, really globally. It's had impact across this world through the, through the millennia, but it's beyond just, far beyond, infinitely beyond just great literature. It is unlike any other book, and we need to read it with that in mind. Now, these verses point us in that direction, and they tell us at least three things. 
in terms of how it is unlike any other book and how it is that we ought to be approaching it with at least these three things in mind. So there in your notes, your outline. First, it's origin, where it comes from, therein what it is. Uh, secondly, it's, it's impact, what it brings, uh, the effect that it can have upon us because of its origin, because of what it is. And then there, with all that, the third point being its result, the purpose for which God has given it. Uh, to us, what it produces, what it manifests in our lives. So let's look at these three things in turn. First, its origin. Where does it come from? What is it? What is this? Verse 16, just a little bit of verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Those are curious words, aren't they? Is that how we normally speak in terms of how we speak? But that is really what it's saying. This is God speaking. Just as surely as I am breathing out right now with every one of my words, just as surely as you did this morning with whoever you've talked to thus far today, your words are breathed out, meaning they come from you. You are the author. You are the source. You are the origin of those words. The Greek word, here's your Greek lesson for the day, theopnustos, literally God breathed. God breathe. That's what the words mean. So it's speaking to the fact that the, 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 the scriptures, all of it, Old and New Testament, are spoken by God. He is its origin. He is its source. That's, that's what theologians have meant for, for many, many years when they refer to the inspiration of scripture. They are God breathed. And, and that, that speaks to its, the author. Now, that's not to downplay, by the way, it's not to downplay the role of the human writers who are very much, were very much involved in the writing, but it is to make clear that God is the author, there are human writers, but that he is the divine author such that everything that we have here is exactly what he wanted to be written, no more and no less. That's inspiration speaks to who the author is. But because of who the author is, that tells us something of the authority, the authority of the words. You know, who is speaking is going, depending on whose words they are, is going to have a lot to do with the authority that those words carry. Well, if God is the author, if he's the one speaking, well, then, of course, these are words of ultimate authority, trumping any and everyone else's. Um. And so we, we can know then, given that it's God speaking, there is there's no chance whatsoever that they are going to lead us into error. Now, how do we know that? Because God does not lie. So because God does not lie, and these are his words, these words will not lead us into error. So this is another $10 word, infallibility. So the, the scriptures are inspired, and they are also infallible, meaning they will not lead us into error. And also they are without error, meaning that they are inerrant. There's no mistake to be found. Therein they are completely and utterly, finally, trustworthy. What we have here in the Old and New Testament. They, are divine, uh, they, are, they have a divine origin, a divine author, divine authority. Hang in there, Sky. Um, <laughs> Got to collect myself here. Um, they are of divine origin, divine author, divine authority. 
and therein it's why they have the power that they do. It's why Paul says what he does in verses 16 and 17, justifying, explaining what he says in verse 15, right? If you go back there and he says that the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, it's because of that that he then says what he does about the source and the authority. It's why they're able to have the impact, the effect that they do. We'll get into that here in just a minute. Now, just before we go on to the second point, that this is bears worth saying that when some of you have study Bibles, and that's great, that's fine, but please understand your notes at the bottom of the page, that's not what we're talking about right now. We're not talking about commentaries that are inspired, infallible, and inerrant. Nor, this may make some of you a little nervous when I say this, but you've got to hear this, nor are the translations that you have inspired, infallible, and inerrant. What we're talking about when we use this kind of language is we're talking about the original manuscripts. What Paul wrote, what John wrote, what Matthew wrote, all the others. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the original manuscripts. You say, what museum can I see those? You can't. We don't have any of them. None of them have survived those times. And you say, oh, now I'm really nervous. Hang on, hang on, it's okay. Because textual experts, linguists, assure us. It's absolutely true. We can talk, if you want to talk about this later, we can. We have an embarrassing number of ancient copies from all over the, that region. We have an embarrassing riches of copies and an, and an embarrassing, uh, well, number of copies such that we have great certainty with what we have carried on to the 21st century, in our, even in our English translations. And these textual experts tell us that there are so few, so if so many copies and so few, such a high, high number and such a, such a low, low number of any variations whatsoever in those copies, and those little variations have no impact whatsoever. They have no, nothing to do with any of the significant points in the scriptures, such that we really can't have great confidence when we open up our Bibles still today in the 21st century Western world at this level of confidence. Let me, if I may use this metaphor. When you're opening up your Bible, you can have as much confidence in what you're reading as if you were being given a copy or a scanned version of a legal document from a lawyer, and that's what you're, you're not looking at the original, but you're looking at a scanned or Xerox copy of the original, and you can then know that, well, that's good enough. That's what we have with these 66 books found Old and New Testament. We have that kind of, can have that kind of confidence of divine origin. Gracious, we should read it with that in, in mind, with that in mind. Okay, now we need to talk about the impact, the uh, effect that it can have upon us. And we see that as you just read just a little bit further in verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So because of what it is, it then has this effect. It can have this impact upon us. Paul says the the Scripture, the sacred writings are profitable, meaning uh, useful, meaning beneficial, for us as we read them and as we take them to heart and take them into our lives. Uh, beneficial, useful, profitable in a range of ways. Paul gives us four words that you can basically divide into two groups. So first, 
useful, beneficial, profitable for us in our beliefs, what we know, how we think. Uh, He says, teaching. The scriptures, the sacred writings show us what we ought to believe. Now, the reality, here's, think with me. Everyone is a believer. I just mean by that, no one just is, has a blank brain, a blank mind. We all believe something. We all have a worldview. We have a presuppositions, assumptions that we bring into everything. We are all, as R.C. Sproul used to say, we are all theologians. Everyone is. But the scriptures show us what's the right thing to believe about God and this world and this life and, what he, and who he is and what he has done. The scriptures teach us. They also reprove us. They rebuke us. They correct us. They convict us. They help, they, they, they help us to guard against what we ought not to believe. So he's saying it positively and he's saying it negatively that we would know that we would know truly, that we would know rightly the teaching and the reproving, our belief and also our living because he's, the Lord is not interested in just a bunch of spiritual intellectuals, a bunch of eggheads, heads on sticks, but rather life, life lived out. The two things connected together, one leading to the other. So our belief and our living, he, the scriptures are meant for our correction. I'll give you one more Greek word, uh, epinorthosis, epin. Ortho, as in orthodontics, orthopedics. The scriptures have a straightening out, a a, a making right that which is going wrong and crooked and astray in terms of our choices in life and priorities and and such. It sets us right. It puts us right. uh, That's the negative way of putting it, but it's a positive way, and that is to say trains us in righteousness, instructs us, disciplines us. There's a fullness to the impact, the effect that the scriptures can have upon the mind and the life, but upon the belief and the living, as uh, I think it was uh, John Stott said, our our creed and our conduct, the two at the same time. Now, before we go into the third point, this, this should be emphasized, this should be noted, and that is that the scripture is given of all scripture. That dual impact on belief and life is said to apply to all Scripture. The parts that you like and the parts that you don't. The parts that you love to read and are your thing and the parts that rub you funny and wrong and get your britches all bunched up. The parts that comfort you and the parts that convict you. The parts that cross all the political lines. The, cro- the parts that make the red staters all happy and the parts that make the blue staters all happy and the parts that make all the purple people all happy. The parts, if I can speak a little more specifically, that tell us to be generous with our finances, open-handed. And the parts that tell us to be strict and guarded with our sexual purity. The parts that tell us we must stand for the preciousness of life at every stage and the parts that tell us that we must stand up for justice in this society. All scripture. We are not given the latitude and freedom of cherry picking. We have to pay heed to all of it. 
And all of it is described in, in this way. All of it having its source, its authorship, all of it's having its authority, all of it having its effect and impact upon us, if we will but heed it. If we will but heed it. Unlike any other book. Any other book. Oh, we need to approach it, read it, engage with it, that in mind. Third point, third of the three points. Uh, what is the purpose? What does God have in mind for his people as we would engage with this privately, publicly, corporately, all of that, the result. Well, we move on to verse 17 now. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, now that, by the way, is a generic, it's everybody, so ladies, please don't be offended, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's pretty obvious on the one hand what Paul is saying and then less obvious so if you really sit and until you really sit and think about it. So explicitly Paul is, is saying here that um, with the word we are completed. Uh, meaning that we are made, the word can be translated, we are made capable, we are made proficient, we are made uh, able to rise to the challenge. It can be you know, meant in that context. We are made complete. We are, he goes on to say, we are equipped. So it's like we are really complete in that we are equipped. We are fully furnished, thoroughly equipped for whatever God has in mind for us. Do you believe that? Is it enough? Is it enough? Paul tells us we are thoroughly complete and equipped. Now, that's the explicit part, but think with me. Just put on your thinking caps for a moment. Uh, But think with me about the implicit statement here. So if that's where we are with the Scriptures, where are we without them? Does that make sense? There's a sense in which you could say the Scriptures are, this is crass, please don't push this metaphor too far, plugging the holes. We're like Swiss cheese. Yes, cheese. Like Swiss cheese with holes being, being plugged. And boy, do we need it. The idea being that, that the, the, there's something too great. The task before us is too great. We are utterly outmatched for what's in, by what's in front of us without the Scriptures. That's too much, and then too little. We have what you and I bring to the table is far too little. We are not just outmatched. We are utterly inequipped, unequipped without the scriptures. That's the, you know, the flip side of what Paul is saying here, given that we, with them, we are complete, equipped for every good work. Now, so we, we, on the one hand, you can say this is incredibly encouraging to know that my, literally my God, with with the scriptures, I am equipped. I am complete to do, carry out every good work. That is incredible incredibly encouraging that should get you out of bed tomorrow morning maybe even without your caffeine probably with it but but also so humbling right the very thing that's so encouraging to know is also just as much when you hear it deeply humbling because without it where where are we where are we with the scriptures, but this, this is the emphasis. We need to really land on this. With the scriptures, we are indeed, as Paul says, complete, equipped, just as much as any of the saints in the history of the church. Name 
your favorite figure from church history or from, from Old and New Testament history. Just as much as any of those folks were equipped with the word of God, so too are his people now with what we have. With what we have. Because the, the Lord is not interested in any way whatsoever in just sending us out, vainly bumbling about, trying to fend for ourselves and figure it out. No, no, he has spoken. He has spoken. We don't have to just bumble around and figure it out. This is like any other book. We should read it with that in mind. Let me, uh, if I may, then just shift end this part. What I want to say, um, truly we have a treasure here when you consider this, when you consider the, the origin, when you consider the, uh, the impact, when you consider the result, the purpose of what God has given us in, in the sacred writings, the, the scripture. We have a, a treasure here. Now, you could say, oh, yeah, I know because I know what, I know what it auctions for. I, I know what those rare Bibles sell for. I looked this up. Uh, the Codex Sassoon estimated somewhere between 30 and $60 million, this, this particular Bible. Or the Gutenberg Bible, depending on how many volumes of it that you have. Just one volume, well, that only fits you 4.9 million. If you got the whole set, 35. I don't think McKay's sells that, but uh, anyway. The Bay Psalm book, 16.5 million. Sure, treasure of great value. Right, right, right. You know what you're holding in your lap? What's sitting in the, pu- the, the seats there in the, the little pocket there? Or, or any water-damaged paperback with a broken spine and a torn off cover with scribbles that your kid put in there with all the crayons and even your illegible notes that from five years ago now you cringe at what you said all that that Bible is of inestimable worth Because of its message, because of the power, because of the potential, because of where it comes from. Now, what, as we're moving here towards the table, what does that tell us about God, that he would give us such a treasure? What does, us te- what does that tell us about him, that he would speak to us in that way, that he would take the trouble to give us something inspired, infallible, and errant. What, what does it tell us that he would take the trouble to preserve it, that we would have it all these years later? What, what does it tell us that he would speak and give us such a treasure? It tells us we are his treasure. You are his treasure. It tells us something about his love for us, his people that he is not content to just create us and step back and say, hope it works out, but rather he moves towards us, engages with us, initiates relationship with us because love communicates, love speaks. Love sacrifices. Which brings us to the table and what we have here and uh, the import and significance of everything that we have. Um, 
the sacred writings, Paul makes reference to that in verse 15, that are able to make you wise in salvation through faith in Christ. That's the message that all the 66 books are about, the, uh, the uh, 39 of the Old Testament and the 27 of the New are about that very thing, how we can be saved through faith in Christ. Multiple authors, multiple contexts, various genres uh, and settings and themes, but one message. We are great sinners and Christ is a great Savior. That's the one message. That we are saved through faith alone apart from anything we do. And when you've got that, to the extent that that has gripped your heart, it will change everything that you then do. That life-transforming reality. And as that life-transforming reality makes its way into our hearts, it changes us and we become increasingly complete increasingly equipped for every good work. And we begin to discover, my goodness, I am dependent upon him from the very beginning of my spiritual birth and all through my spiritual life. I am completely dependent upon Jesus. And that's what this table is about. The ongoing, perpetual, continual, deep, mysterious, magnificent, reminding and reassuring of who we are in Christ and how that has come about through his finished work. Paul speaks of this uh, here in what is in a, which we often use in a communion, uh, Lord's Supper, time in the service, which is where we are now. 1 Corinthians 11, he writes, For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This tells us so much. It tells us what this is. We call it a sacrament, meaning, again, that it is a, a, is a sign, it signifies, it points, it reminds us, tells us, symbolizes some things to us. It's also a seal, meaning that the, by a beautiful way, the, the, the Holy Spirit working in those who receive this bread and this cup in faith can be reassured, their hearts sealed anew in what he has done for us. So this morning, if you're here, and as we're about to stand and move forward and come and partake of the bread and the cup, if you're here this morning and you know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, we, the Nicene Creed was read, you're like, that's fascinating, that's interesting, that's not where I am. You understand it, it just simply makes sense that it would not be appropriate for you, and we don't want to in, in any way for you to feel pressured to take of the bread and take of the cup, because that's not where you are. But I would just ask you to consider this, what is standing in the way? of you putting your hope in Christ. What is standing in your way this morning? This is for the believer.
But even here, too, Paul gives a caution. He, in essence, is saying, my, my brother, my sister, where are you in your heart resistant to the Lord's lordship, his kingship, his reign in your life? Where are you rebelling consciously against him? Again, this would be an opportunity for you to repent, to turn, to do business with him. And then next time we do this, to do so with all of us. Uh, this this is a, a gift of God for the people of God, reminding us, reassuring us, and oh, how we need it. I think it was last week in leading the class discussion in Gentle and Lowly, uh, uh, the image, and we talked about it for a few minutes in there. Um, we are like not, we don't just leak. We're like those little sand buckets that little kids play with at the beach, you know, the little red bucket with the yellow handle, but with holes all through it. Maybe the bottom dropped out almost, constantly needing to be refilled. I got holes all through me. So do you. We need this, and God in his mercy and grace has given it to us. So we have these four tables, four sections that ask you to come row by row as the folks in front of you are done and have come back. Then the next row go, next row go. We have a table there. We're going to take care of the folks in the AV area and the folks out in the hallway as well, uh, there, are, there are some bread set aside in each one of those uh, gold trays that's uh, gluten-free. So if you need that, that is for you. Can I pray? Jesus, thank you. You know what we need. We need to hear from you. And we have it in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Truly, as we pick up the, this book, these sacred writings, the scripture, the Bible... Uh, we can know, really, thus says the Lord. Uh, would you please help us to appreciate that? But also, part of what you say calls us to do this, what we're doing now in this worship service, in partaking of this bread and this cup. Would you, Holy Spirit, move in our midst where we need that reminding where we need that reassurance, where we need the sign and the seal, would you please bring it as only you can. We pray in your name. Amen.